0: Welcome to Movie Club, with Jeffrey McCoy and Donald Knutson. And now, our feature presentation. All right, Donald, this is New Year, New You.
1: New Year, New You, not New Year, New Me.
0: This is a uh, Dead Poet Society from 1989. This is a movie that we wanted to do for Millennium Movie Diary, but was too old to make the cut. Yeah, so it was a 1990 release.
1: I'm still surprised by that. Like when we put it on the list, I was like, oh yeah, that movie from the 90s. It's gonna be a great Millennial Movie Diary. And then I was like, oh yeah, it's not because it already got it got pre pre excluded.
0: Yeah, I thought this movie was actually older than it is because I remember watching. This movie and Goonies like back to back for a lot like a giant piece of my childhood. I would just like if it was like raining out and I can go out and play.
1: That seems I like would me. just watch these two movies back to back. Uh do you wanna blow I also watched this movie way too young.
0: Maverick teacher John Keating uses poetry to embolden his boarding school students to new heights of self-expression.
1: That's a very dramatic reading of a pretty bland IMDb blurb.
0: Yeah, I tried to massage it a little bit since I love this movie so much. Yeah. Uh, This movie is directed by Peter Weir, who we also covered for The Truman Show.
1: That's true. We did. Yeah.
0: And then this movie is written by Tom
1: Shulman, who
0: this is like a really oddball in his writing credits because he goes on to write a bunch of like irreverent comedies. Mm hmm. So he did, like, Eight Heads in a Duffel Bag, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, What About Bob, Welcome to Mooseport, and then the beginning of his career is Dead Poets Society.
1: Uh, I mean, I think it fits more than you're giving it credit for. It, ha- it has, like, a, I don't know, uh, existential look at the realities of society, quality to it.
0: Sure, but, like, compare this to, like, Honey, and Shrunk the Kids, and one of those is pretty much a written as a comedy and this movie is not written as a comedy
1: yeah i like, mean it's only a tragedy because it ends on tragedy sure but it could have been like yeah aside from like 10 minutes of this movie it's it's otherwise like a comedy
0: yeah uh this movie stars reppin williams a baby ethan hawk not literally a baby but a baby in his career
1: pretty much a baby ethan hawk yeah yeah
0: um and then the only other person I really recognize in the cast is Josh Charles, who plays Knox Over Street because he was in the Sorkin Sports Night TV show from the late yep. 90s. Or he was in 2000s. Sports
1: Night. He also plays a cop in a lot of television. Like, people yeah. will recognize his face.
0: And then uh, Kurtwood Smith, who plays Neil's dad, is famous for that 70s show.
1: Yes, famous for that 70s show. And then Neil himself is, uh, he was the other doctor on House. The, the like, uh, can't remember his name, but... A, a, yeah <laughs> like a seven-year run as the other doctor in the house
0: perfect um and then just real quick i wanted to talk about this movie get nominated for a ton of awards uh well not a ton four four academy awards which is kind of a lot yeah uh so it won for best screenplay written directly for the screen so that's original screenplay correct mm-hmm. um was nominated for best picture Nominated for Best Director, and Robin Williams was nominated for Best Actor in a Leading Role, which is the first of many, I think,
1: for him. It's also, I mean, it's an internal debate, right? Is he the lead in this movie? He's not the protagonist in this movie. He's more the antagonist of this movie. Kind of.
0: I would say that society is the antagonist of this movie.
1: Sure, sure. But he like. He essentially offers the loophole around society.
0: Yeah, he's he, the MacGuffin of this movie.
1: No, no, that is that is not true.
0: Is he the two sex machina of this movie? Oh, my God.
1: He's the he's the Gandalf of this movie.
0: Yeah, like
1: he's he's the, the- MacGuffin. You, shame on you. It's <laughs> This is something I've been trying to teach you for five years. Ridiculous. Listen. I get a lot of feedback
0: that me doing this to you is hilarious.
1: No, you say that to yourself in the mirror and you bring that energy on the podcast.
0: Literally, at least once a month, someone goes, when you say that to him and he knows it's not true and he plays along, it's hilarious. Or when you do this and you like call me out on it, they also think that's hilarious. So
1: lose, lose (laughs) for me. It's a bit
0: forever. Um, This movie.
1: That's the MacGuffin of of our podcast. Your lack of knowledge.
0: This movie made a shit ton of money, Donald. Did it? Yeah, so it had a $16.4 million budget. Okay. Guess it's box
1: office. Mm, I would 16, put it in the, like, 60 million, $60 million range. Like, quadruple its money?
0: $235.9 million. What? That's it insane. made a shit ton of money. It made $219 million more than its budget. In the that 80s? Is, yeah, that's so much fucking money. Wow. I did. I, when I looked it up, I was like, Oh, um, this movie probably broke even because it's like a, one of those critical darling movies, right? That <clears throat> heavily features something we weren't allowed to talk about in the 80s, which is suicide. Correct. And I was like, there's no way this movie made a ton of money. And I saw it and I was like, oh, it literally made so much money that no one could deny it type thing.
1: Wow. Yeah. Okay. So it comes in as the eighth eighth highest earning movie of
0: 1989. Yeah. Crazy so much money
1: do you want to know the seven above it yeah hit
0: me okay
1: again. Ghostbusters 2 okay yeah ip sequel no problem look who's talking
0: well <laughs> <and John
1: Travolta. laughs> honey i shrunk the kids the movie we've talked about already rain man kind of wild lethal weapon 2 indian jones and the last crusade and then batman
0: well at least all of those are like iconic movies of the 80s right yeah yep so that at least there's no like random movie in there where it's like this movie made a bunch of money and no one ever talked about it ever again so that's at least a plus. plus
1: two movies that earned just less than this movie back to the future part two and when harry met sally interesting yeah i think that's actually probably more interesting that this out earned those
0: the most depressing thing about the list of movies that made more money than it is that like action ips have literally just been dominating the box office for thirty-three years. Yep. At least.
1: Yeah, I think basically since Star Wars yeah. came out in the seventies, then just they just fucked the movie theater industry for forty years.
0: That's incredibly depressing.
1: Thanks, George Lucas.
0: Yeah, one of the many, many things he's done wrong.
1: One of the many. That is hundred percent true. Something he didn't do wrong, though, was do anything related to this movie. So yes. good for him for that. Lucky uh us. Do you have my mandated recap ready? I do, although it wasn't a mandated recap. I volunteered for this one. Right. The mandated ones are like the notarized letters that I get in the mail where you like make sure that I receive them and you're like, you got to do a recap for this thing. This one I volunteered for. Uh, yeah, so our three characters that we follow um, are Neil Perry, who's like a high-achieving legacy of the Welton School. Todd Anderson, uh, like you said, played by young Ethan Hawke. He is... Just starting Walton Academy, but his older brother went here and <clears throat> set like a really high bar of achievement, apparently. Which I don't know what that means really for high school. Just like I don't know, he got into a good college or something.
0: Yeah, well, I guess so. Just as a side danger the Walton Academy is
1: a I'm getting basic, there, I'm getting there. I, was getting uh, to I, was, I didn't know if you, you were going to explain what Walton was. Yeah. So, uh, and then knocked over street, um, played by future cop slash. Um, tv star <laughs> josh charles he, he has a superhero is, name
0: like Knox over street like he could be some sort of like crime fighter in
1: gotham city with the name like Knox Overstreet. <laughs> i guess that's true he would he would be a good uh on un, like underworld boss though i think because he rules yeah. over the streets of gotham but he's anyway hard. he's a. Uh, He's sort of our comedic relief, but he's also a main character, I would say. So the Welton Academy, as you were getting ready to steal from me, is an all-male... Uh, it's implied that it's high school, but I guess it would be like a just a college preparatory school, essentially. So it's a secondary finishing school for boys.
0: Yeah, it's the D League for the Ivy League. It's like a, it's like the minor leagues. So if you go to this school, the chances that you're going to an Ivy League are like much higher. Like... The Ivy League looks at Welton as a place that cultivates the ideal Ivy League candidate.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm a and as someone who's never attended an Ivy League and really doesn't know anyone who went to an Ivy League, I don't know what that feeder system looks like. But from you know everything that media has told me, basically, you're a shoe in when you associate with all the right people.
0: Yeah, it's literally like the greatest life lesson of it's only ever matters who you know.
1: Correct. Yeah, not what you do. Um, <clears throat> so we get dropped in the movie at like opening day speech delivery, where basically the headmaster of Walton Academy is telling everyone just to like keep their laces tied and keep their buttons buttoned and they'll get into whatever Ivy League they want to and go on to do great things and represent Walton Academy in the future is the idea.
0: So this is where I told you I had a really, I had a joke that was in really bad taste that I would insert in your recap. Oh, great. Would you like to hear it? I would love to hear it. I like to apologize ahead of time oh. but if i were introduced to welt in this way i would 100 percent kill myself
1: oh i don't know that's in bad taste but yeah it definitely reeks of something i would never want to be a part of it's just as like a it's billing itself as this soul crushing experience essentially
0: yeah, and there's so this movie takes place in '59. So there's also like the subtext of like the people who were going to this school are the children of soldiers who had just come back from World War II. Right. And they're like being forced to be pushed through this school to have a better life than I. Like, I don't want you to have to go to fight a war in Europe to make your life better, so I want you to go to an Ivy League school. But then the like culture of the school is like half is like incredibly religious and strict and the other half is like really militaristic and strict and there's like no middle ground there's like these two strict ideologies like forcing the children into line
1: well and it's a boarding school too right so it's it has both of those like strict uh, rigorous rule setting pieces to it and expectations but then it also has the like i don't really want to hang out with a 17 year old running around my house so get lost for nine months of the year yeah quality to it too so it's like absentee parenting mixed with unrealizable expectations
0: yeah it's like i had this child because the government told me it was my duty as an american to repopulate our country because so (laughs) many of us died in this war they forced me to fight Mm -hmm. but i don't really feel like raising this kid but i don't want them to have to go into the military so i will just drop them off here
1: yeah and then it's their fault if they don't take advantage of the good opportunity right yep um and so at this opening speech we're introduced to john keating who is a previous graduate of Walton Academy and had also graduated yeah. from Ivy League school and it's unclear why he's back and I don't I don't remember getting any actual explanation of why he's back to teach at the school other than he loves teaching that's the only explanation we get
0: there is no ex- I have a theory uh, if you would like to hear I it I figured
1: you had a theory yeah uh, so
0: yeah do you want to hear it now or you want to hear it later
1: I think now it's probably fine all right so He's clearly then, having a midlife crisis of of some sort, right? So, he is having a midlife Christ crisis, Because or
0: he has well, no, he has a fiance in in Europe. It's mentioned mm-hmm. later.
1: When, That's true uh, in London, right? Yeah. Yeah. When
0: when they come to his room yep. and they're like, "Well, why are you here?" And he's like, "I just love teaching so much." But you get the like, the play between him and the headmaster, right? Where the headmaster was probably his headmaster when he was a student.
1: Yeah. And probably remembers all the bullshit that he put that he had to put up with. Right. Yeah.
0: And he's probably made it, like, part of his life goal and part of his main life crisis of, like, this place didn't crush me in the way it wanted to. So there's something about me that this place can't crush. Huh. So if I go back to said place, I can stop it. If I can stop it from crushing one extra kid, then whatever was in me will now be in them. And I will, like, my success in life will be how many people I can stop being crushed by Welton. All right. That's my theory.
1: I like that. Yeah, it's sort of a unrealized potential thing, right? That yeah, he's coming back why, to the one thing he was good at.
0: Yeah, which is why the climatic scene at the end of this movie is so important.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's also important as a bookend. So <clears throat> after after the opening day speech, we get a little tour of campus. All the freshmen that are entering are like crying to their parents that they don't want to leave them forever, which... Is not my memory of being 13. I would have no. loved to have been <laughs> at boarding school and been like, see you later. No rules. This is great. Uh, and then we get introduced to roommates. So uh, Neil and Todd are roommates. And then Knox and Charlie are roommates. And I don't know if we get the roommate situation of anyone else. If like Meeks and Pitt are roommates or what. But anyway, the important ones is uh, Neil and Todd being roommates. Because they're like the power couple, I would say, of their, of their grade. Where- yeah, literally,
0: literally and figuratively. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 literally and figuratively. Um, we get introduced to their study group, which I thought was going to be code for something way more sinister than what it actually was. Like, I thought maybe they were smoking a pot or something like that. But truly, it's let's go hang out in the rec room together and then act like we're studying and just cover for each other. That's all the study group is. It's kind of lame.
0: Yeah, so this is basically <laughs> like in in junior high when I lived in Illinois, we had a study group, but it was uh-huh. like this group of like me and like four of my friends, and we would just get together and like we would trade comics back and forth. And be like, yeah, hey, you have to read this one. It's got like this really cool splash page. And I'm like, oh, you need to read this one. And like, we wouldn't actually study. We would just like hang out under the guise of studying, which is you know, when you're in a militaristic boarding school. That's the only way you really can hang out. Because I'm sure every 15 minutes of their day is probably regimented.
1: Yeah, probably. Yeah, so it's it's more misanthropic than it is, like, with any criminal bent to it, which is yeah comical for us. But, you know, for them, it's but, probably yeah. a relief.
0: So, like, these are the five people who I am going to suffer through these four years with. And we can tolerate each other so we can ease our suffering this
1: way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we attend... I guess, English class, um, but really they're covering classic poetry for the, the most of their first semester, at least. And our introduction to Keating's teaching style is he has them read the preface for the poetry book, where essentially it, it, for, it informs the reader that you want to grade the poetry based off of how good the prose is and then how important the poem is. And then if it has both of those things, then it must be a great poem. And it has like yeah. a mathematical formula for it. I was going to say, it like, says,
0: reduces poetry to its mathematical core. And it's like, this is not what the arts are. But this yeah, is what you expect well, from Well,
1: I mean, it kind of is, right? So under a modern lens, this would be viewed as populism, right? So it has the widest impact on the most people. And that's what makes something important. So it's sort of like a bad movie getting released on Netflix versus a good movie getting released in a theater that no one sees and it's you know like which of those is more important one of them people actually see and talk about the other of them is obscure and you know a fraction of that same population sees it so if a tree falls in the woods is it did it still fall like do we know about it
0: yeah but when they're reading when they read the like paragraph out loud (laughs) it's not explaining it like that it's basically like if you read this poem and it follows the correct like syllabic formula, mm-hmm. and it rhymes in the correct places, then... Iambic
1: pentameter, baby.
0: Yeah, then heretofore it is poem equal great.
1: <laughs> here to four. Are we just throwing random English words? Yes. Okay. Henceforth on. So, <laughs> the reader, Hoomst, ripped out the introduction. No, so J- Keating instructs them all to, like, so they read the preface as a group. It's, like, monotonous, uh, you know, go around the room, read your paragraph type of bullshit. And then he's like, now... Rip it all out. Basically take these, take these set of pages and just tear them out of your book.
0: And the kids are like, what the fuck did you just say? Little <laughs> <Yeah>. kid. <laughs> and one, all one of the
1: Kids too is like, he half rips it out right where he doesn't want to remove it completely. And, and I thought that was just kind of funny. Cause I feel like I would react similarly if I had a school book. Cause ostensibly these books aren't theirs, right? They're left for the next generation. So they're truly defacing someone else's property at that point, which would be a big no, no. Um, and he uses this as a lesson, essentially to say, like, art is what you make it, What whatever it says to you is what's important about it. Um, and he turns this into a lesson of, you know, do something with your lives that makes you feel like life is worth living. And he he teaches them the Latin, or not teaches them, they already know the Latin, carpe diem, because they take Latin, because this is a yeah. fucking bullshit male preparatory school. <laughs> but that's his catchphrase, is, is carpe diem.
0: He's teaching them nihilism, where he's like, nothing matters but your section of the world and making yourself happy through the suffering.
1: Correct, yep. Which is
0: apparently where I got this at age seven, and <laughs> I just ran with it for It definitely years.
1: didn't connect with me, so I I haven't watched this movie since the nineties and uh, definitely took away something way different, you know, Thirty oh, yeah. years later. Uh, anyway. Okay. So he does little tricks to teach them essentially like differing your perspective and how to, pr- how to actually pursue carpe diem. Right. So he has them stand on top of his desk at the, at the front of the classroom to like give them a different perspective. Um, he has them, I guess, embody the passion of poetry as they kick the soccer ball as far as they can. So it's sort of like, I think the thinking there is it's taking their mind off of the literal reading of something and more like getting into the visceral feeling of something. He teaches them to scream, um, yops, right? Where they're yop. And the idea is it's like a more guttural sound. So it's, he's trying to get to the core of the emotion of reading poetry and less of the technicalities of composing poetry.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of uh, clear your mind and like express the first thing that comes to it rather than regurgitate what you think they want to hear.
1: Yep, and the so the kids are naturally like curious about Keating because they know he's a Welton graduate and they look him up in the um, the yearbook and they see that he was the president of the Dead Poet Society, right? So they they try to figure out what that is and he basically tells them that it's a way that he and his friends sucked the marrow out of life, where basically they just kind of sat around and, and chum, chummed about and talked about what was important or tried to figure out what should be important and just enjoyed their time together. So Neil and Todd and Knox and Charlie are all inspired to re- restart the Dead Poet Society. So they meet in this weird cave where they... They don't actually do anything original. Um, I guess the only problem that they really tackle is uh, Knox Overstreet's infatuation with um, another rich girl who's dating a local quarterback.
0: Yeah, and he like literally is love at first sight. Knows nothing about her. but Yeah, it's, it's
1: like true her. infatuation where he doesn't know anything about her. She knows nothing about him. And he's like completely idealized his own version of her yeah. this and is, projects uh, that upon
0: her Ginny danbury played by a very young laura flynn boyle
1: oh yeah it is laura flynn boyle isn't it interesting uh yeah okay uh no Ginny is the um sorry jenny is the sister of the quarterback the girl he's after is chris
0: oh my bad
1: yeah that's okay um That's right. So Ginny is the person that they're trying to set him up with. But Chris is the person he's actually in love with. Um, And that's really the only problem that they truly tackle. There's a there's a moment where some of the local girls are brought into the cave and they like, I don't know, adopt personas of themselves uh, where they get to, I don't know, be not cis hetero high schooler males that are, you know, Uh, (laughs) trapped in the military school.
0: Chris is played by Alexandra Powers, and her last name is Noel. Her name is Chris Noel, which Chris is probably then short for Christmas. Her Christmas name, pro- name is probably literally Christmas Noel, because <laughs> her parents are fucking assholes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, my, one of my favorite jokes to do with people when I used to write names on cups for customers was if their name was Noel to leave off the L. And, but still pronounce it correctly? Because it's no L, right? You can't have L's in there. It's not allowed. Anyway, sorry. Way tangent. Way, way tangent. Let's bring it, bring it back. Um, okay, so they restart the Dead Poet Society. They're learning how to feel poetry rather than compose poetry. Uh, one of the key scenes in the like second act where we've gained the trust of the kids as Professor Keating is when he gets um, Ethan Hawke, Todd Anderson, to pop up. And read his poem and and he doesn't want to do it. He he's basically uh he lies and says he didn't do the assignment where he was supposed to compose an original original poem. So then Keating takes that opportunity and uses his stage right against him, basically, where he like has him close his eyes and then imagine what Walt Whitman, a portrait of Walt Whitman, would be, I don't know, doing as a character. And he's like, well, he's like a crazy madman, and so then He like gets him to go off on an extemporaneous poetry composition, and then it sort of unlocks the class of like, oh, that was ridiculous, and is something that you would definitely make fun of another high school boy for. But also, was undeniably authentic. So, like, you can knock it, but you can't really knock it that much because it was real, and not something manufactured. So that was like an important moment in the in the movie because um, shortly after that is when uh neil decides that he is going to audition for a midsummer night's dream at the local high school
0: oh i wonder before we before we get to the play i wanted to digress a little bit to so the before todd reads his poem like one of the jackass kids in class like reads his poem and he's like i'm gonna stick at the kitty and he's like yeah. he's like i saw a dog in the park or like some it's like a poem like that right where like it doesn't really mean anything and Kitty's like, I know no, you No, no, it's a
1: Dr. Seuss poem. It was, uh, it was like a, one of the lines of a Cat in a Hat. I'm pretty yeah. sure. Yeah.
0: But Kitty's basically like, I know you just like wrote this and whatever to like try to stick it to my class and not participate. But just so you know, some of the most beautiful poetry in the world is about the most simplest things. As long as you observe it and you think it's beautiful, it makes a great poem. So next time, just be honest with your work and like doesn't let the kid like stick it to him. He's yeah. like, you actually wrote something great. But you were trying but to it was not original.
1: That's it. the big thing he harps on is like yeah. it was a uh, it was stolen from something else. And so that's what he says, is like simple poetry is great and it, or it can be great. You know, don't like sell that part short. And it's not that's not what's bad. What's bad is that you were just regurgitated something that someone else did. Yeah,
0: I would like Shel Silverstein made an entire career out of very simple poetry.
1: Yeah, I guess that's true. He did. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, for that matter, Dr. Seuss did as well. His poetry his poem, like he makes up words to rhyme with his own words. So I mean, yeah. Yeah. Can't get more original than that. No, definitely can't. Um. <clears throat> so then we get a little bit of tension with the headmaster. So the headmaster finds out that the girls were led into the cave where the Dead Poets Society is. And Charlie gets paddled to like, which I was really put off by, it. I was like, oh, that's right. I forgot that there was, like, actual paddling in this.
0: The the call they received during this is <laughs> yeah, so, so good.
1: The headmaster's, like, addressing the whole school in their little, their hall, essentially. And he's like, does anyone know anything about the Dead Poet Society and these women that were on school grounds? <laughs> Charlie uh, stages a phone call on this old rotary phone, and he... Uh, what does he get up and say to the to the headmaster? He's like, it's for you, headmaster. And then he's
0: like, it's God. <laughs> and, and he <laughs> says,
1: God, God says girls should be allowed at, at uh,
0: yeah.
1: Weldon, right? Yeah.
0: yeah. And then the the funniest part is afterwards, like, Kitty comes up to him and he's like, the phone call is a nice touch. The only way it could have been funnier is if the call was collect.
1: <laughs>
0: Which is like. <laughs> Such an amazing subtle joke to just like throw in there at that at that point in this movie.
1: Yeah, God calling you collect. That is an actually a yeah. good joke. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So anyway, sorry. So we Charlie gets paddled, uh, but he doesn't spill any of the beans about the Dead Poet Society. Um, but the headmaster, he knows something's up with Keating class because he's basically now keeping an eye on him. That all the weird things he's doing with the class because he he saw them rip the pages out of their book. Um, and then he sort of observes down the crook of his nose them doing weird walks around the uh, courtyard of the building. Yeah, he's like,
0: why were you kicking a ball around a courtyard? You're supposed to be teaching English. Yeah. And he's like, oh, I'm trying to, like, raise a class of free thinkers. And then the headmaster hits him with, like, some poem. And Keity, like, hits him with who recited that. And then Keity recites a piece of poetry and the guy's like oh is that so and so and he's like no that's Keedy. Like, it was <laughs> like an original thought and i was like oh what a like what a sweet dig of like keeping the originalness going
1: yeah definitely a good dig um there's definitely some mental sparring i think your i think your crackpot theory is right where basically this guy b- made it probably his like four-year mission to quash any originality out of keating when he was a student so Keating's, like, getting one up on him, or trying to at least. Uh, okay, so then the next little part is uh, Knox actually goes through with pursuing Chris in a under the guise of Carpe Diem, but not realizing that that's incredibly unfair to Chris. Yeah. <laughs> Just in general. Like, it puts her in a position where she has to profess her love to him because he's going to keep harassing her. But she's currently in a relationship with someone else. Uh, I don't know. Not great. Not a great look. And there's no lesson learned there either. That's just sort of like is let to resolve where they kind of end up flirting and they go to the play together. And there's no resolution of it, but it's just sort of implied that it worked, which is a bad, well, bad lesson to take away.
0: From her somebody. high school quarterback boyfriend is going to murder him and then his rich affluent family is going to cover up said murder. Oh, all right. That's what's actually probably going to happen.
1: Unless the kid's poor and then he's going to go to prison forever.
0: Yeah. Well, if yeah. he's not poor, they probably won't kill him. they probably only kill him if they can get away with it.
1: All right. That's fair. Touche. Yeah.
0: Yeah,
1: that's true. I don't know. There's like a quarterback, like being the star of the town thing that he might still kill him and not think he can get away with it. Yeah. It really just depends on who like, does the sheriff want to suck up to the rich people or does he want to stay in, in his office?
0: Also, way easier to hide a body in 59 than it is in, like, 89, so... Okay. He could just go missing.
1: I guess that's fair. You know, people left their doors unlocked in 59. Yeah. <laughs> um. Yeah, so we, we get the Doc Severstreet pursuing Chris story. We also get the... um. Charlie... I guess, like, toying with the idea of uh transsexualism, right? Where he's, like call me pneumonia N- Naman- right or yeah yeah and then being a little bit more effeminate and also oh, neil then being puck in midsummer night's dream so he he plays puck in midsummer night's dream which doesn't really fit in with the overarching story uh have you ever read or seen the midsummer night's dream
0: uh i've only seen the keanu Reeves one from the
1: okay. 90s so it's like the love actually of Shakespeare plays the, the backdrop setting is, uh, the founding of Athens, Greece by, uh, uh, Thelonious, the hero, but it's really follows the, his daughter. And then all the missed like love connections that happen around it. So it truly is like love actually set in Athens, yeah. the formation of Athens. I don't,
0: I don't think that the play itself isn't, and, yeah. like what the play is about just the fact that he wants to be in the play
1: yeah and he has like a transcendent performance but his dad walks in towards the third act and you can kind of see that it twists his stomach um but he goes out and and finishes the job and has a delivers this like pucks big monologue to close out the show to his dad like staring his dad right in the face basically and then big uh, mistake
0: though because his dad is like you're still the fucking kid here.
1: Yeah. And you're going to do what I say. So he, he takes him home and he says that this can never happen again. You you need to be a doctor. And, the, and Neil rightly protests and is like, that is the next 10 years of my life. I don't know what I want to do in 10 years. And dad says, I know what you want to do in 10 years. Like, go fuck yourself. You're doing it.
0: Yeah, and Neil's like, did you like not see me act? He's like, I got a stay in innovation. Like I was great, I could probably do this, like this is my passion. And his dad's like, fuck you. Go be a surgeon and try not to kill people.
1: Yeah. The downside of this is if you like waited fifteen years or so, like if he was born fifteen years later, then you would have needed an extracurricular activity like that to actually get into Harvard Medical School. So Yeah. Oh well. Uh, So he decides, well, my only way out is to get my dad's gun and and blow my brains out. And we get a kind of harrowing scene where the dad wakes up in the middle of the night in like a cold sweat. And he's like, what was that noise? And he starts wandering around the house and then he goes into his study and there's just like plume of smoke that comes out from behind his desk. And you see Neil's hand basically having like dropped the gun. Uh, And I was like. Damn, that is, that is a cold-blooded way of delivering suicide to the audience.
0: Yeah. I would say that this suicide scene in this movie is elegantly brutal. So you don't see any of the gore, you don't see or hear the gunshot, and you don't see any part of his lifeless body afterwards except for mid-forearm to his hand that was holding the gun. Correct. And it is like, so effective and shocking by the less is more approach that it like I, I compared this scene to when i was watching it this time of like 13 reasons why for 13 reasons why I had a responsibility to show you how brutal it was to not sensationalize the suicide right and then this movie because it was filmed in a different time couldn't didn't have the the you know the opportunity to show any of that and both are so brutally effective at opposite ends of the spectrum of portraying the suicide.
1: Yeah. I Looking back, this movie walks in the realm of teen suicide so that things like The Virgin Suicide can run and then the whole genre of YA tragedy novels basically owes its legacy to this movie and sort of normalizing the depiction of teen suicide and the brutality of that
0: yeah like this you know this movie probably paves the way for a little bit of american beauty a decade later as well Oh yeah
1: yeah most definitely um so we only then get the the our epilogue of this movie is basically a tiny bit of the aftermath so it's set uh not in the immediate time uh following but maybe i feel like it's more like a month later basically where they've done an investigation and like a criminal investigation right but the school is still trying to to push keating out because this like tragic thing happened to one of his students and they're they're looking to place the blame on him because i'm sure that at this point the parents are like coming after the school is my suspicion
0: someone has to take the fall and the infrastructure they built can't be the reason why these kids are suppressed it has to be the like free-spirited teacher who came in and put these ideas in their head that were wholly unrealistic for what their life is actually going to be like so
1: it's his fault yep and the headmaster calls in each member of the dead poet society to get them all to flip and he he gets uh cameron the redheaded kid to flip on uh on keating and then the
0: the first kid too yeah like they they knew they're like Let's get the fucking snitch in here first. And once he rolls, they'll all
1: fucking roll. So then they compose this like signed confession, essentially where they then call the other ones in, fly their parents in and get them pressure. Them just like sign this admission of guilt on behalf of Keating. And then they use that. They weaponize that to uh, force him out.
0: Yeah. And I'll pursue one little morsel of hope where like Ethan Hawke's Todd is in the office. Right. And they're like, this is what we were told happened. Everyone else has signed it. You just need to sign it. And Todd, like, he wants to tell them, like, hey, it's not actually like that, blah, blah, blah. And his parents are like, sign the fucking paper.
1: Yeah. And then well, we probably because they don't want to be there, right? Like, sure. They don't care. We, they don't want
0: to be there. Yeah. But then we cut to, like, the headmaster teaching the class. Like, the, yep. you don't even get the triumphant moment of, like, Todd finally breaking his shell. It's just the moment of the system always wins. Yep. Just to hammer home that nihilism just a little bit more.
1: So, the, like you said, the headmaster is now teaching the poetry class. He's, like, taking it over. And he's timed it in such a way that Keating comes back to get his personal effects while class is in session. And so he's, he's doing his, like, walk of shame to his office while they're rereading the preface at the beginning of the book that got torn out. And so it's setting the premise of, well, they're about to learn poetry the wrong way, basically, as Keating is getting his stuff. And Keating goes to leave. And Todd gets up and exclaims that, you know, they were forced to sign this paper because he's, he's clearly feeling guilty about it, essentially, that yes. he doesn't realize that Keating was going to get forced out either way, whether they signed it or not. This was just, like, made it that much more clear to them to be able to do it.
0: It's literally the last moment of, we need to tell him that we know that it wasn't
1: his fault. Right, yeah. So, yeah, Todd gets up and, and he, he says, you know, I, kn- I know it wasn't you they made us all sign it and then uh the headmaster tries to exert control over the classroom but then all the members of the Dead poet society get up on their desks and they you know exclaim the the words oh captain my captain and they basically show that the spirit of Keating will live on in them as they go and they don't blame him for Neil's death they they hold that a responsible at the feet of the system and that's it Keating yeah. leaves, and that's the movie.
0: There's a there's a, there's a World in My Head canon where Keating leaves this school, and he goes to Boston to teach and to further his education, and then realizes that Keating is actually dead now, and he changes his name to Sean McGuire and goes on to teach Will Hunting.
1: Oh, okay.
0: Um, <laughs> I came up with that theory during this rewatch. Um, so after the play... Are like all talking outside about how great uh-huh. Neil was, and uh, he says a line where he goes, um He's like, Be careful with all that excitement, Ace.
1: And like, Oh, he, he does call him Ace. You're right. He yeah. uses that language. And
0: at that moment, I was like, I started forming this like cinematic universe in my head of like Robin Williams' roles where he's actually the same person in both movies, and I was like, okay. Oh shit, no way.
1: All right, interesting. I think we would have needed uh the older Sarsgard Skellon to make an appearance for that to be in the in the greater cinematic universe.
0: I think so too. Yeah. Um also during this rewatch I realized that one, I miss Robin Williams a lot and how influential he was to my comedy as like yeah. a human. Just so good. Um but I created my Mount Rushmore of like comedians who like shaped me. So you guessed two of them and during the pre show that we weren't recording. So, George Carlin and Robin Williams. Um, the other two. So, one is a Chicago comedian. So, John Candy. Oh, okay. It's like, really influential on in me I've never seen
1: John Candy do any sort of, like, extemporaneous stand-up. He's always, like, I've only ever seen him in movies.
0: Yeah, I don't know if I've ever seen any of his stand-up either. But I watched okay. a lot of John Candy movies over and over as the kid Because I really liked him. Like, uh, The Great Outdoors is, like, one of my favorite movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Jim Varney.
1: I don't know if I know who that is Ernest. Oh, yeah, okay, I didn't know how that is. Yeah,
0: I like uh, when I was creating this list the other day for myself, after I watched Dead Poets Society, I immediately watched Dead Poets Society, just like ran it back again because I was like, man, <laughs> I have not seen a, a fucking fantastic movie in like a little bit, so I just need to watch it again. But I watched this like four hour you know, like YouTube essay about Jim Varney's whole career or whatever, and it was like pretty impressive too and i was like man these four people i'm i'm 40 years old and i'm just figuring out all this stuff from my childhood like conducting my own therapy over here (laughs) breaking shit down
1: i mean it doesn't surprise me that this movie would be one of your favorites it's it's like a coming of age movie tied to your nihilistic beliefs with yeah. a comedic bent to it, so. Well, the
0: problem is, is I don't know if I had those beliefs before this movie, or this movie gave me them.
1: Yeah. Right. It's, I, so it's so chicken and the egg, like a, basically.
0: Yeah, because this movie came out when I was like, pretty sure I saw this movie when I was seven or eight. Yeah. And I, like, I didn't understand what happened to, like, before. So I probably watched this movie when I was really little, and then I watched it a lot, like, with Goonies a bunch, and then I don't ever really think I grasped what happened to Neil at the end until, yeah, so probably like. 97 or 98. Like, he, I was like, oh, he like puts the little head thing on the window and then he, he escapes out the window into the mm-hmm. night. <laughs> and because as a kid, I don't understand that he's like, you know, I block out all the gun, the gun, gunplay. Well,
1: because you, it's also hard to understand what that actually means as a kid, right? Of like, okay, yeah. he's got a gun and he's motionless. Like, what does that, what does that mean exactly? Yeah, I also forgot that there was a teen suicide in this movie until you told me. And I was like, there is. But yeah.
0: It's also like,
1: at one point, it's
0: like, well, you know, like, he's taken the easy way out, right? Because suicide's always the easy way out. But at the same time, so. he's like, you kind of sympathize with him. Because for the first time in his life, he's discovered the one thing that he is really good at, and he thrives at, and brings him the most joy. And immediately when that's done, literally 30 seconds after that, the greatest moment of his life, his dad burns it all to the ground. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. literally captures him, like kidnaps him, puts him in a car, drives him away, and tells him he's never going back to that place or see those people ever again. Like you're not even going to go pick up your clothes or your books. Like tomorrow you're going to the military. So it's like in that moment, you're at the highest high and the lowest low. That probably does feel like your only way out.
1: Yeah. There's, there's a juxtaposition too that's pointed out by um Ethan Hawke's character for Neil where he's like you're such a great leader of your peers and you are completely spineless when it comes to your father right and not being able to figure out how to be assertive to his father was essentially what did him in basically and I I do think it was the easy way out I think you know not having the the learning experience, because the the way this actually plays out, right, is he wants to go be an actor. And the dad says, well, fine, you have now have no support system. Right. So like go be an actor and you can be homeless for all I care. Right.
0: Yeah. Which is this is where like the parable to you know, him being homosexual is. Right. Because like mm-hmm. in the, basically even still nowadays, if you come out to your parents, a lot of times they will just disown you and you have no support system. And right. You're like from that moment on, you're just your life begins anew and you have nothing.
1: Well, and it's a power move to try to get you to agree to their way of life, right? So they say, well, fine, if you do this thing, you have no no support system anymore. Not realizing that kids don't really understand what it means to not have a support system. And so that's not really a scare tactic. It's just like it feels, that, it feels like you don't give a shit about them.
0: Well, right? also, I don't have a support system right now because you're not supporting Correct. me. You're only supporting your vision of me. And it's like, yeah, yeah it's just all... Twisted and mingled.
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this like the suicide piece is one of the few ways where he can actually exert power and I guess punish his father at the same time. And his mom really like his mom not standing up for him when she's there present for the breeding he gets and how his life's going to lay out. You know, when she came screaming in and she was like, he's going to be OK. I was like, you fucking did this, you bitch.
0: And she's like, my boy, my boy, he's going to be OK.
1: Because that's how you learn, too, right? So, like, if he had grown up seeing his mom quietly assert power of his dad, of, like, his dad is the obviously the loud, vocal one who dictates things, but then occasionally if his mom was like, no, no, sweetie, this is how we're actually doing this, you know, like, figuring out the ways to have power in a powerless situation. Yeah,
0: so I'm going to compare this to another movie that you probably never would have thought I would compare this situation to. Mm -hmm. But when... Ralphie beats up his bully in A Christmas Story, right?
1: Nope, definitely not on the the bingo card.
0: And the mom, like, puts the soap in his mouth or whatever, and she's like, she gets his glasses, and the dad comes home, and she covers for him, right? Mm -hmm. And she's like, oh, like, Ralphie got in a fight, blah, blah, blah. It's not really a big deal. So if Neil's mom had done stuff like that for him as he was growing up, he'd be like, oh, well, secretly my mom's on my side. She's just also fucking terrified of my father. Yeah. But instead... She's just terrified of my father and has no spine. Right. Yep. Absolutely. And she said she loves me and she's super sad that I'm dead. But yet she never stuck up for me once.
1: Yeah. There was never, n- never any there, there. It just was an empty promise. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. Um. So why did you choose this for the new year, new you theme of things?
0: Because that's what Keeney is trying to do this entire movie, is to teach them that there can be a new them, and that, like, the system that has been designed for them is the old them, and they can break free from it and become something new.
1: That's interesting. I I would maybe argue that for high schoolers, right, they don't really have an old them. You know, they're still still sponges at that point, trying to figure out how they relate to the world around them. I mean, like a...
0: A new them is more of like a metamorphosis type thing, right?
1: Definitely of like, so like, the, yeah, so like a cocoon molded, right? coming yeah, out so as
0: the, a you know, yeah, butterfly. they breaking a mold. Yeah, okay. That's the new them.
1: Okay. So your message to people is stop doing what makes other people happy and do what makes you happy?
0: Uh, my message is, is that the future that other people want for you isn't always the future that is best for you. It is up to you to determine what that future should be. And you should strive to achieve that. Okay. Not that p- other people are wrong. It's just that they're... Ver- so in a roundabout way, this is like, you know, the version of I, of myself that I am to you and the version of myself that I am to my parents. is not the same version of myself that I am to me. Correct. So th- all of those people have different visions of what I should be and what my future should hold. But I also have a vision for what that should be. And I should probably strive to be whatever that is.
1: Okay. I think my message to people from this movie is don't expect anything of anyone else. One, it makes you happier because you never get disappointed. And then two, it makes them happier because they don't have to live up to your expectations.
0: Yeah. And parenthetical, if your last name is Noelle, don't name
1: your daughter Christmas. Oh, yeah. Fuck those parents.
0: Uh, We have to grade this movie. We didn't grade the last movie because.
1: Oh, we're grading these?
0: Yeah, we'll grade these movies.
1: I thought for classics, we did like a red by our past thing.
0: Yeah, but I figured since we put them in a theme, we can grade them.
1: Okay. Do you want me to go first since you're going mean, to give it an A plus?
0: Yeah, I'm mean, going to give this movie an A plus.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm going to give this movie a B. It like has a great setup and then kind of misses the landing. But I think that's not really a fault of the movie. That's more of like, this is a a uh, phenomenon we've talked about a lot where you know you listen to the Beatles now and you're like, all right, this doesn't sound that amazing or revolutionary, right? But you have to put it in the context of the time where it doesn't take the landing because no one else had been talking about teen suicide up until this movie, right? So it has to dip its toe ever so lightly in the water so as not to like drive people away. Cause if it just like has the full-on 13 reasons why I talk at the end of this movie, then people leave it and they're like, that was disgusting. You know, I, I don't want anything to do with that movie. But viewed through a 2023 lens, the way they treat it is, like, almost comically bad. So that's why it's getting a B rating. I think if in the time, like, but, you know, if we're doing this podcast in the 90s, one, we're going to be millionaires because we're doing the first podcast ever. Oh, yeah. And then two, uh, this movie gets an A for sure.
0: Um, I think if I were to change any piece of this movie, hmm I would, so after we cut to black, after Neil's parents find him in the study, I put a black screen and I run text, mm. and the text is, you know, after the tragedy of Neil Perry, Wilton conducted, you know, its investigation, and all the students found Mr. Keaty at fault. Uh, headmaster starts, you know, uh, following Keaty's like, dismissal of service, so-and-so takes over the class, and... They start to read from the torn out pages of the book, but then we fade back into Ethan Hawke standing on his desk and the Oh Captain My Captain, and okay. then we we do that scene and then we fade back out to credits. I don't think we need the piece in between,
1: where they're like betraying him essentially and they're having a yeah. crisis about doing that. I think that. you
0: can just have exposition for that okay. of just like a couple of paragraphs on the screen and then you can end. You go straight from the suicide to like three minutes of text to the oh, Captain My Captain and then we get out.
1: Interesting. Yeah. So,
0: it's very know. conflicting for the audience, too, right? Because, like, you give them this really low point and this really high point, but you smash them as close together as you can at the end. And then people talk about the movie like this afterwards, of, like, what was the end of this movie actually trying to say? Because th- think... there is a point here where, is Mr. Keaty actually an influential teacher to them? Yeah. Or are they only doing the oh captain, my captain, and seizing the day because their classmate killed themselves and doesn't get a future? Yeah. So are they now beholden to Neil's memory to live their life to the fullest because he can't and okay. chose not to? Or are they choosing to seize the moment, carpe diem, and live their life to the fullest because that's what Mr. Kitty taught them? They will never know the answer to that question. It's true. We I will never mean- yeah
1: they they could never really know right like one can't be divorced from the other right yeah
0: so i think that's also part of like the message of this movie is like did he actually teach them anything or was neil the ultimate teacher by ending his life yeah Hmm. big questions
1: those are big questions i do like your your edit though i don't know that you even need exposition so they fade to black and then what if they just cut to the ta- to the classroom with the headmaster teaching the class, right? Because then you your brain can fill in all the blanks there yeah. of what happened or and just play that just, scene out of him getting his stuff.
0: Yeah. Or you just like cut the black and you just hear the kids going, oh, Captain, my captain over the credits.
1: Mm.
0: Like you don't even show them.
1: OK, he's ended on the suicide. Yeah. Brutal. I mean, it's pretty
0: final, right?
1: It's very final. That's true. do you when i watched this movie and i I watched it i was like man if this had been made maybe 10 years later there's a sequel to this movie for sure like where we pick up with them as adults and figure out what their lives became
0: yeah we do the the chapter two model where like yeah we pick up with them at the 10-year reunion
1: i mean that like that could be an hbo limited series right you just like get Ethan Hawke back, get Josh Charles back and get, uh, Robert Sean Leonard back. And just like, well, you can't get him back. He's dead, but, uh, maybe his ghost, he appears as a ghost. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you just, I mean, you can set it far enough in the future that it would make sense that, uh, John Keating had died of old age or whatever, couldn't make the trip to, uh, their reunion and then they can just, you know, live their lives.
0: Yeah, you put it, like, 10 or 15 years later, too, and you need to figure out which one of them turned out to be hippies and which one of them are, like, all about, like, you know, Gerald Ford and Nixon, and, like, you have to do all that stuff.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's true, because, like, if it's set in 59, then, twenty like, 20 years later is, you know, just after Vietnam, right? Yeah. So, hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. Someone should
0: hit up. Someone should hit up Ethan Hawke.
1: Ethan Uncle will do anything these days.
0: Yeah, that's what I mean. they should have him up.
1: <laughs> he is the first reformed. Yeah. He's just hawking his wares everywhere.
0: This is Big Movie Club, a proud member of the Coykinuts Podcast Network.